I'm Bert Broadhead, and a big welcome to another summer edition of Building Our Future, the podcast where we meet the people shaping the way we design, construct, and utilize our built environment. Today, I was lucky enough to track down one of the industry's preeminent lawyers, who is also immersed in a huge array of other real estate-focused initiatives. As a leading light in spreading news of industry innovation via Twitter, but also practicing what she preaches when it comes to collaboration, Susan Freeman is a fascinating port of call when it comes to checking the pulse of the industry and then gaining a macro perspective on how change is developing. As befitting a passionate generalist, we cover a huge array of topics, from using social media for business purposes, to the evolution of space as a service and Susan's rock-fast belief in the need for collaboration, to the future of retail, the ideal workplace, and even how to nurture tech startups within your business. As ever, show notes are available on our website, buildingourfuture.org, where there's plenty of other links to further resources and other things we've talked about during the episode. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter, where we'll keep you abreast of new content available to download on the podcast. My guest today is Susan Freeman, a partner at the law firm Mishcon Susan holds a business degree from London Business School and is well known as a proponent of innovation in real estate and described by BizNow as one of the best connected lawyers in the sector. Susan is one of the most followed real estate Twitter users in the UK. You can follow her activity on at PropertyShe. Susan is a member of the Mishcon Tech Group, whose MDR lab runs an incubator program for legal tech startups. And she also mentors for PyLab's PropTech startup Accelerator. Susan is on the advisory boards of Seaforth Land and Work.Life and chairs the property group at B London. She is also a member of the London Chamber of Commerce Property and Construction Committee and has recently been included in BizNow's 51 Most Influential Women in Real Estate. Susan, welcome to the program. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Bert. That's quite an extensive, but also quite a varied CV by way of introduction. So I thought before we just jump straight in, Love to know how your career has ended up taking the path that it has and at what stage you branched off from the more conventional legal route. Yes, that's an interesting question (laughs) to start with. Yes, I spent several years as a transactional property uh, lawyer and um, joined Mishkondorea as a partner in 1995. And to be fair, um, I'd always been really interested in business development as well as as well as real estate. So, a few years into my time uh, here at Mishcons, I decided to take a sabbatical. But rather than taking a year off travelling, I decided to go to London Business School and do the Sloan Masters program. Which I th- I think had I realised what I was getting myself into, I might have thought twice about it. And people who do the Sloan describe it as trying to sit water from a fire hydrant because you're, it's, it's such an intensive course and, and you do a normal two-year MBA course uh, effectively in a year. So there is just so much information. I mean, it's fascinating, it's challenging, but quite terrifying. And I think I came out of that year realising that um, I'm absolutely passionate about the real estate sector, that the sector is well, I certainly was then very much behind the curve in terms of innovation. I felt that uh, I wanted to do what I could to sort of try and push the envelope a little, carrying on with what I was doing um, in real estate with clients. But I just felt that actually getting involved in some of these issues would be helpful 
for the clients and helpful for the business. So that, that's really where it started. Did you always have the intention of going back into law post MA or MBA or um I have to say I had a completely open open mind and and the thing I suppose that really struck me and surprised me was how passionate I was about real estate and the thing that upset me a little bit about being in the business school community and London Business School is one of the uh world's top business schools was the lack of interest there in what was going on in the real estate sector so uh we would be looking at um change management case studies, which would be all around increasing productivity and changing the culture of a business. But nobody was at all interested in who actually made that happen and who created places. So one, one of the things I did uh, when, I, when I finished at London Business School was to try and highlight that and see whether we could build bridges between the real estate sector and the business school. And I think one of my first columns for Property Week at the time um, was very helpfully headed memo to Sir John because Sir John Ripblatt was then on the board of the governing body of London Business School and I thought that would be an interesting conversation to have. This is something we're going to pick up on later but it's interesting that already at this stage you're you're clearly keen on the concept of collaboration so um, we will come back to that. Tech-led property innovation is, is clearly your thing. I can say this as a, a newfound member of the, uh, the Twitter community. Pretty influential member, must say, with my 50 followers. Very much finger on the pulse. A little bit embarrassing compared to you. You do have a proper following. Uh, and I suppose you've been one of the, A, the first, but B, the most successful embracers of social media as a means to get your message across. Firstly, why? What's the, what's the aim? To be fair, I think I probably wasn't one of the, the first in, and I remember... Uh, People like Tom Bloxham at Urban Splash talking to me about tweeting and retweeting, and I actually didn't know what he was talking about. I think it was probably about seven years ago, I was writing a regular column for Property Week, and uh, Giles Barry, who was the editor, suggested that I had a look at Twitter, and I... I was a little bit disparaging about it and, and said, why? You know, I thought, you know, it's just gossip. Why would I look at Twitter? And he said, just have a look. And I, I realised that um, it was the most amazing uh, source of information. So my intention was really just to use it for that and not get involved in any conversations. And I think that lasted all of about five minutes because as soon as I you know, saw what was being said, I wanted to get involved in the discussion so I started and I, I know what it's like you start, you don't have any followers and you wonder where they're going to come from. And I just found, A, it was a really good source of information and um, B, I was effectively meeting, albeit virtually, like-minded people who were interested in the same sort of areas that, that I was interested in. As a long-time cynic uh, who basically only joined because, uh, yeah, to get the word out about the podcast a little bit, I have been um, pleasantly surprised. My rule which I'm determined to stick to, uh, to only talk about property, not to veer down the, the politics road, keep it, keep it nice and friendly. But, uh, but it has been amazing how many business contacts, and I, I don't mean that in a kind of cringy way, but things that I'm working on where someone's popped up and like, oh, wow, that could be a really useful piece of innovation that I might be able to use or someone who's consulting on something which could be great to use. It is kind of a good way of just seeing what's out there. A question I was asking Matt Partridge last week of, of Infobode. How do you stop yourself kind of drowning in content and, and use your time most efficiently? 
I'll give you one of my secrets, which is uh, it's very important to have have lists. I couldn't possibly uh, devote the time to uh, follow everything that comes through my timeline. So um, I have got um, clearly defined lists. So, for instance, there's, you know, news list, press list, property list. So if I've been in meetings for an afternoon and I want to know, you know, actually what's been happening in the world, it's, it's the news list. If I want to catch up on what's been going on in real estate, property list. Well, for anyone listening who feels like Twitter could be a useful a useful avenue to explore, um, do check it out and have a look at uh, uh, Susan's handle, which is at Property She. It's as good a place as any to get going, and you'll, you'll see all the various retweets and what have you, which will point you off in all sorts of interesting new ideas and themes to explore. Thank you, Bert, for that uh, endorsement. Um, my pleasure. So, <laughs> so look, one, one of the interesting things... Um, reading or following your your twitter profile is you do um you've got a finger on a pulse of lots of different things across the industry and, and it's clear that you know you take an interest in a very broad view a generalist which is great because yeah you do have a, a slightly different perspective to other people we may speak to you're clearly a big proponent of collaboration um so we've already touched on this but what what do you really mean what's the what's the driving force that really came about, uh, it started probably, I think, four years ago, uh, MIPIM UK, when we had protesters outside who clearly uh, weren't very keen on property developers. And we were inside at a round table and we came to the conclusion that what we were saying as, um, as, as part of the real estate sector wasn't that different from what the protesters outside were saying. It was just that we weren't getting our messages across. And um, we were talking about the fact that the man in the street who doesn't really know the property sector, all they would tend to see is the rich lists, really not know enough about the positive things that the sector does in terms of creating great places. So one of the things that came out of that was um, the Collaborators Initiative with the Estates Gazette. And the uh, idea of that was to promote and reward collaboration. And what we had in mind at that time was collaboration between the public and private sector because we, we felt very much that in order to, to really uh, develop, to create more housing, um, we needed to encourage local authority and other public sector bodies to work with the private sector. That's how it started. And actually, uh, when, when you start looking at collaboration and looking to promote it, you see it, you see it everywhere. So now uh, we've talked about, um, about tech and another important collaboration is uh, between the real estate sector and the tech community. That also comes under the umbrella of, of collaboration. So it has become, and somebody asked me uh, recently if I'd actually uh, trademarked the word collaboration <laughs> because it, the, the uh, collaboration uh, hashtag does come up uh, a lot. But I think it's important. If you look at what's happened in recent years, the, the defined silo of the real estate industry seems to have broken down a little bit. So there now is a convergence with the tech industry. And I don't know whether that's just a change across all sectors or whether that is just a result of good collaboration coming more to the fore. I think uh, it's it's happening um, across, across the board. And uh, many people would say that the real estate sector has been uh, a little late to the party. I think most people have now realise that the world is changing very, very fast and that technology can help us work better and uh, more, more efficiently. So, for instance, the, um, the Future PropTech 
conference this this year, I think there were about 2,000 uh, delegates. It's grown exponentially over a few years, but really indicative of the fact that people working in, in real estate want to understand what's out there and, um, you know, they want to work with technology to improve uh, the way they do things. You have um, first-hand experience of this through through your uh, role at Work.Life. This is effectively service officers. Used to be known as service officers and is now known as co-working, co-working facilities. and flexible space. In the context of what we were just discussing about finding that balance between collaboration and quiet time, are we getting kind of closer to finding, is there an ideal solution or, or is this just horses for courses? People work differently um you know different organizations have have different uh, requirements and um if you go to uh, to work life or other co-working spaces you will find you know a combination of different types of space so there will be meeting rooms there will be open areas and uh, i think you know people have to adapt uh, to what they that, what they need and any one particular organization will have different requirements at different times if there's a big project going on and you want to get your team together you need the space in which to uh, to do that there'll be other times where people are writing up reports um and they they need to be sitting quietly to do that for instance i i know i brought you through our um uh, our lounge area really quickly but when we uh, mishkondorea moved into africa house we deliberately designed the ground floor as a client business area with a coffee bar in the middle so it's all informal it's like a hotel lounge so um, a lot of our informal client meetings are held there we have the more formal meeting rooms as well but it is a great way of working it's not to say you want to have all your meetings in the lounge yeah. area but equally you don't want to have all your meetings in a boardroom uh, with a table so i think that flexibility allows us you know really to work in the way that we need to work the clients really seem to to like it they feel very relaxed and they'll you know come in and and, and sit there and uh, use the facilities this co-working whatever we want to call it is symptomatic of a, a wider shift in real estate from property owners focusing on tenants the end user as well as the intermediary some see this as democratization of a built environment do you think this is a result of emerging technologies and and the entrance of prop tech into the into the mainstream industry or is this a result of a changing mindset one thing i was very aware of when i came out of the business school experience where i'd spent uh, a year and a half focusing on customer service and I, i came out and i looked at my sector and i said well actually does anybody know who the customer is and um, it was you know, still at a time where we had landlord, we had tenant, and we very rarely we sat, we actually I think we started using the word occupier, but not uh, not customer. And then we had the disappearance, if you like, of the institutional lease. So for a long time, I think the reason the sector didn't concentrate on a customer was that um, you would grant a lease for twenty years, twenty five mm. years, and you might see your tenant at rent review, but you really didn't need to see them again until the end of the lease. So there was actually no incentive to keep the customer happy or to make sure that the, um, you know, the customer remained in place after the lease came to an end. That's gone. So if you own a property, you want to provide the best experience for your tenant, occupier, customer. So I think that's really been quite a driver in terms of how we look at the customer in real estate. 
you look or if you think about kind of big institutional owners who want really bespoke product, no one's going to build that for them on a five-year, ten-year lease. That's only ever going to make sense if they commit to the to the long term. So that, there's always going to be that piece between, unless people are prepared to do it on their own balance sheets, if you want big and you want bespoke, you're going to have to sign up long-term, aren't you? It's a combination, but, um, you know, if you, if you go back uh, a few years, the, the norm was the long lease. Now people, you know, are looking at flexibility and saying, well, actually, yes, you know, we like, we'll maybe take some long-term space here, but we'd also like short-term, more flexible space, you know, in, in other places. Uh, if you look across to retail, you've got the uh, emergence of, uh, of, of pop-ups and wanting to provide more experience, you know, in shopping areas and town centres. So it's actually, it's quite, it's quite a good thing that property owners and property managers are having to think about what's going to keep the customer happy and the customer can be the tenant occupier plus you know if you've got a, a retail center it's it's the end consumer as well so um i think that's changed and then you have got obviously the sharing economy which um has i think made people think a lot more do they need to own something you know are they happy just to to share it do they need to own a car or can they get an uber and i think that's permeated um everything so it's i think it's a you know it's a combination of things and then you know if you shift across to um to residential build to rent uh, we didn't have a an institutional rental mm. um sector and and now that is being created and uh you know for many people it's becoming a lifestyle choice they don't necessarily want to own their own home they'd rather invest in something else and have the flexibility of living you know, if they want to live next door to where they're working or they just want to shift to a different part of town, they're not stuck with a mortgage and uh, the uh, illiquidity of, of owning a home. So it's it's happening across the board. One of the things that underpins all of this, which interests me, is the diminishing importance of location, where, you know, it used to be the, the famous tenants and now you've got so many different ways of measuring performance of a property beyond just, you know, what's the rent next door uh, in the next door building so if you take an office um how productive is your is your workforce not there yet but there are now ways of measuring that how healthy your workforce how happy are they um how many sick days are they taking what's the quality of light uh and you've got all these different factors so it's you know what comparing buildings because they're next door or what have you is becoming more and more complicated and people more likely to stay for many different reasons beyond just how close you are to a a tube or whatever it may be a well-designed building can now more easily compensate for its lack of ideal location one of the themes is that um you know businesses are going to be competing for talent and for you know the best the best people and uh, i was actually uh, on a london business school course a couple of weeks ago and one of the professors was describing you know the way a corporate would be acting would be like a talent agency to actually attract the best talent and then use that talent around projects you know in a different way from the way we worked before so the building, the environment, everything that you can provide for your, uh, the people that you're employing is going to make it a more attractive workplace. Now, I, I think location does have, I mean, it's got to be connected. Yeah. It's got to be connected. So I think the important thing is the tube connection. So if it's easily accessible, it's great space, you've got outdoor space, you've got um, collaborative space. I think all that will help. And the other theme, actually, 
which goes with that is continuous learning. In the pursuit of uh, top talent, I think uh, that businesses are going to have to actually provide ongoing learning for the people that uh, mm-hmm. that are working for them. It's, it's, I think, obviously money is a factor, but I think people are going to want more than just, just the money. One of the things that we have here at Mishkondorea is um, our academy, which is achieving almost I mean it's like a university the idea is we'll be continuing learning all across the firm and uh, it is not necessarily legal related it relates to all sorts of aspects and is very I mean it's important and we've had huge take up for that. Something you've touched upon but if we if we talk about kind of seismic industry shifts it would be remiss to not talk about um, retail. So amidst talk of a retail apocalypse where do you think the sector's heading? Well, I think you could put me down as an apocalypse denier. I mean, it's something that I've written about from time to time, and I rather like the um, Sir Terry Farrell uh, view of it. His view is the high street over the centuries has always reinvented itself, and it is going through uh, a period of reinvention. I think it's a question of really looking at what, what people want. I think, you know, we one of the themes that comes up um, quite a lot is, is is loneliness, and I think people need that community centre back, um, you know, in their life. And obviously, work is part of that, but it can't just be work. So, um, you know, people want somewhere where they can go, where they can sit, where they can meet people. The problem has been we've had too much retail. We probably relied too heavily on on retail for our shopping centres and high streets. Again. You know, if you're living in shared accommodation, you're not going to want to go out and buy loads of furniture and clothes and things because you haven't necessarily yeah. got uh, anywhere to put them. But you want to go out and enjoy, um, you know, trying a new bar or restaurant or, or seeing something that... Well, you, you can say it. Experience. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying experience. But, I mean, this whole experience thing has been going for quite a, a long time. In fact, it was one of the drivers that sent me in the direction of uh, business school because everybody was talking about the experience economy. And actually, it's not that new, but I think the realisation that people don't want to just go and buy clothes they want to um you know they want to see new things um they want they want things that are sort of stimulating and i think it's going to be a real mixture of um sort of experience and 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 what we already have in shopping centers and the high street i hope so um i mean yeah my my, my experience is uh, i think it's quite easy to take a uh a view as a, as, a, as an urbanite and you read the papers and you know footfalls falling everywhere and spenders down but actually you go to these town majority of town centers are still bustling they might be slightly less than a couple of years ago and people might be spending less but people still visit town centers the key is what are they going to be doing there and fine it may be less shopping because of the internet but people still need a place to congregate socialize spend the weekends what have you and it's just making sure that the um the offer matches the uh, desire Yes, and I, I, you know, there's been a real sort of uptick in um, markets, for instance. And if you get a good, you know, good market in in, in a town centre, you know, selling food and local produce that people want, I mean, that creates, you know, a real, a real buzz. So there are things to do. I know, I know there are issues around it, but um, I think it, it can, it, you know, it can be improved. I mean, we could get into the area of business improvement districts and what business improvement ooh, districts can, um, you know, can do where you have fragmentation of a, of a shopping centre. I would like to get into that, but, but very specifically, because you have 
first-hand experience of a, of a bid. And for those of us which aren't familiar with them, these are business-led and business-funded bodies formed with the purpose of improving a defined commercial area. This is kind of real collaboration between various stakeholders, normally within town centres, I suppose. And the idea being that you, you have a budget which people contribute to and, and you make improvements which are agreed upon for the greater good. Did it work? Yeah, <laughs> it's working very well. Yes, I, I like to refer to, to bids as the, as the ultimate collaboration because it, it takes you know, the local authority to work with local businesses and uh, for the uh, property owner bids, uh, you know, for the property owners yeah. to get involved as, as well. Because most of our high streets are fragmented, mm-hmm. they have you know, many different owners. And unless you have some sort of body that brings, brings them together, it's difficult to, uh, to change strategy. I mean, one of the things I've written about recently is the um, is the great estates and and for instance the Dwarden Estate and Maribone High Street, you know, being able to completely reinvigorate that because they own the high street right. and the Crown Estate, um, you know, has done a fantastic job with Regent Street, but most high streets um, aren't aren't like that, and it's a question of whether we can give local authorities additional powers or whether we can uh, turbocharge business improvement districts, give them additional powers of uh, CPO to enable them to change things. So I think that's something we should uh, we should look quite carefully at. Is technology helping this collaboration within bids? So the idea that you no longer have to maybe meet in a town hall or whatever once a, once a quarter, there's now you know, online tools which... Yes, I mean, so the you know, the websites and 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 the apps, but I think nothing quite beats actually getting people around the table together to say, well, okay, you know, what are the issues? What can we do about this? And and also part part of the uh, bid activity is getting people together, getting local businesses together. So um, you can't totally rely on the, on technology. And and you you have helped uh, create the, the Mishcon Technology Group. No, well, you've worked on the Mishcon Technology Group. I would, I, I would, I would like to claim responsibility. I'll, I'll give you that, a bit of but, extra but, credit. Uh, you definitely have, Susan. But, but no, um, no, we have, uh, we have a terrific and incredibly talented team here who have been working on that uh, for some time. So I'm just uh, involved on the peripheries, trying to tell the world how wonderful it is. Right. Do you end up using some of the companies that you're incubating, and or, or is this more of a, a VC endeavour? What's what is the strategy? It's very much sort of two way in terms of the uh, uh, the incubator that uh, we want to work with uh, companies that ha- have got an interesting idea that we feel uh, would translate really well to the world of legal services. They will come in and work collaboratively with us for a very intense 10-week period. They learn, you know, from the experience of working with a big law firm, they can test ideas, we can give them feedback. So the the product at the end of the 10-week period when we do the demo day has been honed and it's it's just so interesting hearing from both sides mm. how it's helped them working together. I think we've invested in two of the startups from the first cohort we have just got to the end of uh, our period with the second second cohort. So some of them are real estate related. Some of them, you know, relate to other other practice yeah. areas uh, in, in the firm. The one that I've worked most with is from our first cohort last year, which is Orbital Witness. That's three young space scientists who use um, 
you know, spatial technology <laughs> um, uh, to help with property searches. I mean, satellite imagery, yes. and we are using it very productively on all our searches, real estate searches now. It's quite remarkable because, for instance, you're buying a property, you want to know when it was built, extended, yeah. when you know something was done to it. Uh, you can actually look at the satellite imagery if it's available going back from month to month, year to year, and see exactly when the work was done. And it's, uh, you know, it's a remarkable tool. So that's something that practically we're able to, to use, and it's working really well. So I think I've seen either this or something very similar to it. Um, the thing that kind of blew me away was the ability to track effectively um, housing development, single family, from, from space and monitor live using AI at what stage each house was at. So whether it was you know, just for slab in, uh, walls going up, roof on, and then kind of give you a full breakdown of scheme by scheme all these housing projects. And it certainly streamlined the way uh, we work. Um, and uh, it's uh, also the um, platform now links straight into the land registry, straight into sort of local authority. So you can do your searches uh, as you're looking at the, uh, at the imagery. Um, this is a, a fuzzy question, but I've seen, I'm sure most people are aware of leases being extracted by AI. Maybe the wrong verb, but I'm sure you know what I mean. Um, how far do you think we're away from that being being done on a really accurate scale? We're not at the stage yet where you can take your um, you know AI program out of the box and say, right, check the rent review clauses. Yes. So. It's early days. We're, we're using programs pretty extensively now, but the um, you have to teach the pro. You have right, to actually. It it's only as good as the uh, information you feed into it. And you know, the more you use it, the better it performs. But uh, we're certainly using these programs extensively on large portfolio transactions. But not necessarily. Obviously, you can't ask them to go through every lease and then you know, produce reports. But if you are looking, for instance, on a sort of rights of light situation, right. we've used it sort of pretty extensively, you know, at early stage so that we can check all the titles to see where we are likely to have some sort of problem. And that's very helpful for the client because you can see immediately how extensive the problem's likely to be. So could, could you check, for example, whether things are contracted outside of the, the act? Yeah, because you will check for the clause in yeah, the in the lease that right. says it is... Con- so absolutely. So if that's important, um, you know, the client wants to know right at the outset how many, yeah. how many of the leases are contracted out, absolutely, you could... Um, uh, you could you could look you could look for that. And do you feel like you're you're at the forefront in terms of your adoption of technology within within your legal work? Most of the larger firms are in different ways adopting new technology. I think I think we're all doing it slight, maybe slightly slightly differently. But you know, it's something we decided some years ago. Uh, it was something that we needed to to embrace. I think you can't put your head in the sand and say, oh well, you know. What's the lawyer going to do if we've got um, these these programs? I think I think the role of the professional is um, is evolving and um, and changing, and it's in the interest of our of us and our clients that we can perform our role more efficiently. Yeah. And that's you know that's that's what's happening at the moment. It's exciting. It's really it's, it's exciting, and it's sort of enabling us to um, produce uh, new programs that we can use internally. For instance, we can now map visually 
you know, a client's property portfolio. So you can see exactly, you know, where each property is, when it was bought, you know, whether there are any particular issues. And it's, it's great to be able to see all that visually. I'm going to take that as a very modest, yes, we are at the forefront. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. So we're, we're on to my, uh, my final two questions, which are, um, what's your favorite building? I think um, I would have to say the Shard. Just having been in that building shortly after it was uh, completed on a very, I mean, beautiful, sunny, clear autumn day and being able to see out for, I mean, they say 30 miles, I I don't know. And actually, I've got a photograph of that visit with the late Irvine Seller. And I think um, it just is quite a testament to him that he managed to get through all the planning and all the restrictions and, and get this, you know, beautiful building built. And the second question, which is, which innovation or technology that we come across in, in our business kind of excites you? I'm looking forward to the, um, the driverless car. And I, what amazes me is that technology is pretty close. And yet you talk to people who are very much in that area and you say, well, do we know uh, whether we're still going to need car parks or are they going to be on a permanent loop? And um, apparently we don't seem to quite know how it's, how it's going to work. But um, I think that's, that's going to be quite exciting. And, and then the other one I quite like is the, um, is, is the drone that you can program to just uh, follow you. And I had this idea, I've not been able to cycle into work because I always have bags and books and makeup and everything. And I thought perhaps with this drone carrying everything, you know, I'd be freed up to, to cycle. So I'm quite looking forward to that. Well, I, haven't, I haven't heard of this. It's amazing. So you, you can run to work with your, your personal porter drone. drone. Ah. Uh, well, that, that is something to get excited about because I was really excited about driverless cars. And then I had uh, Nathan Corrin on this podcast and uh, he, he's um, transport engineer, architect, uh, just general genius. And he, um, he, he kind of killed, killed the dream for me. So uh, Why? Well, because I didn't, he, his view, which I can't really um, give reasonable voice to at the moment, but made a lot of sense at the time, is, is that a lot of the problems we think they're going to solve they're not really, and what they're likely to do is just move traffic from one area to another. Well, this is what this is what I'm I'm worried about. When I was told by an expert that um, we don't know yet how it's going to work, we don't know whether somebody is going to keep their driverless car right. circling around the restaurant for three hours while they have dinner, or whether the driverless car is then going to go back in the pool and uh, service somebody else. So uh, there does seem to be quite a lot of uh, uncertainty. And then all the ethical problems, you know, who decides who they, you know... Pick up, mm. right. Uh, and, well, Nathan also worked on the Heathrow pod, which obviously I hadn't heard of, but you've seen those little autonomous vehicles. So he he, uh, he worked on that, and apparently the, the difference between having that kind of system and something which can intuitively understand about you know a dog running out in front of a car and all of that is it's one thing being kind of close to it and it's another thing trying to close off that gap but we still have a dream of uh, of porter drones so uh, <laughs> we're trying to visualize like, yeah, that <laughs> this porter can, uh, drone being weighed down by all my bags and clothes and shoes yeah yeah that's fine that's enough to enough to keep me happy but look thank you very much for for coming on the show it's been uh, fascinating to hear your views uh, and again um yeah do follow season she's on at property she thank you Bert. it's hard to conclude an interview with such diverse topics except to say that throughout the life of building our future 
we've heard plenty of common themes of space as a service, collaboration, and community. And it's clear from speaking to Susan that these are industry-wide trends. How we do things is changing, and how we learn about that change is also developing. Last episode, we spoke with Matt Partridge of Infobode, which I'd highly recommend as a means of customising your news flow. This week, if you haven't already, give Twitter a go. It's free, and like Susan, you may be pleasantly surprised where it leads you and what you learn. If anything we discussed today resonated, do let me know via the link on the website or via Twitter, my handles at building underscore R. Uh, it's always great to hear feedback and it really helps dictate the direction of future interviewees. We'll be back shortly once I'm back from what feels like a long overdue holiday, but do please subscribe or sign up via the website for further news about future episodes. And if you haven't already been away, very happy holidays. Happy holidays.